this week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Idaho is first in the West when it comes to per capita farm income, plus a thorough look at the nation's drought and water situation. We also get a forward glimpse of 2022's Farm Economy Report, and we'll tell you how a beginning farmer can be a good neighbor. And of course, Paul Marchant brings us another installment of Irons in the Fire on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. Welcome to the program. Our news is just ahead. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. The latest U.S. topsoil moisture condition report reflects conditions that could impact both spring crop harvest and winter crop planting at the present time. Rod Bain has more with USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. In the context of the U.S. topsoil moisture condition report for the period ending September 11th, it was a relatively dry week for much of the United States. There were some exceptions. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says regarding states in the topsoil moisture surplus category, we still see some lingering pockets of wetness across the south where we have seen fieldwork delays and some crop quality problems. While numerous states with very short to short topsoil moisture conditions now have ideal fieldwork for dry down and harvesting of spring crops, while others in the same condition face not enough moisture as winter wheat planting is underway. As of the 11th, we see U.S. topsoil moisture surplus just 3%. That is down one percentage point from last week. And at the same time, we see topsoil moisture rated very short to short, 49%, no change from last week. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USDA's latest World Ag Supply and Demand Report created market implications for both crops and livestock. Here's Michael Clements with the American Farm Bureau Federation. USDA released the September WASDE report Monday, lowering crop estimates for both corn and soybeans. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Bernd Nelson explains. Monthly World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates were released Monday by USDA's Office of the Chiefs Economist. Decreased corn supply for the start of the new marketing year. Now, this was largely driven by a drop in production due to a reduction in the national average yield and area harvested. Corn production is forecast at 415 million bushels lower than last month at 13.9 million bushels. Nelson says USDA made changes to other crops as well. Soybean yield is forecast at 15.5 bushels per acre. This is down 1.4 bushels or 3% from last month. And acreage was revised down by 600,000 acres. USDA increased the 22-23 cotton crop and ending stocks compared to August. Production was forecast at 13.8 million bales. Wheat planted acreage has changed only slightly in the 22 and 23 marketing year at 47 million acres. Nelson adds the grain market response also has implications for livestock markets. 
somewhat bullish report for grains doesn't quite have the same effect for things in the cattle market. So leading into this report, December corn kind of rallied around 80 cents since August 18th. November beans, however, had not built in quite the same bullish expectation as corn had. We had a much stronger response in the soybean market. This increases the cost of feed grains for a lot of our cattle feeders. So this inevitably puts some downward pressure on our feeder markets. Learn more on the Market Intel page at FB.org. Michael Clements, Washington. The world may be producing more wheat than was first projected. Gary Crawford has more with USDA Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski. The world wheat market is likely to be a little less tight than was expected a few weeks ago when the USDA was projecting world wheat production this season to fall below last year. But now the analysts have added 3 million tons to their forecast, which is for production of just under 784 million tons of wheat that would top last year and... If achieved, it would be a new record. USDA Outlook Board Chairman Mark Jekinowski says this is mainly because of better-than-expected wheat crops in the Black Sea region. Both Russia and Ukraine. Russia is looking like it is likely to harvest a record large crop. And while the war has cut wheat crop prospects in Ukraine by about 37 percent, Mark says... Ukraine's crop at 20.5 million tons is about a million tons larger than we had expected this time last month. For U.S. wheat producers, more wheat in the world may pressure prices a bit. USDA cutting its season average wheat price forecast by 25 cents down to $9 a bushel. That would still be record high. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Well, despite being the fastest growing state in the nation, Idaho is still number one among the 11 western states when it comes to farm income on a per capita basis. Per capita farm income is arrived at by dividing a state's population by the total amount of farm cash receipts produced in that state. And farm cash receipts refers to the revenue farmers and ranchers receive for selling their commodity. According to federal data released September 1st and crunched by University of Idaho Extension educator Brett Wilder, Idaho farmers and ranchers produced over $4,300 per Idahoan in farm revenue during 2021. That made Idaho the top state in per capita farm income among the 11 western states last year. And that is far ahead of number two, Montana, which came in at $3,700 in per capita farm income. Garth Taylor is a University of Idaho ag economist, and he said we're just a big ag state. The profile of agriculture in the state is still huge. And Wilder said the per capita farm income data shows that agriculture remains an incredibly important industry to Idaho. California led all U.S. states in total farm cash receipts last year at $51 billion. But when it came to per capita farm income, they came in at just $1,300 per Californian. What the per capita income data shows is that agriculture is far more important to the average Idahoan than it is to people in other states, even California, the king of ag states, according to Taylor. Now, if you'd like to read more of this story, you can go to the Idaho Farm Bureau's website, look in their news section, and the headline, Idaho Unchallenged, number one in the West in per capita farm income. USDA's Undersecretary for Rural Development told a House committee this past week continued partnerships, including among federal agencies, are essential in bringing and expanding high-speed Internet to rural areas. Rod Bain has more in this report. 
The efforts to install and expand high-speed broadband in rural America require partnership. The message from USDA Undersecretary Sochil Torres Small testified before the House Agriculture Committee in a Thursday hearing on broadband and crafting a new farm bill. Through efforts like the Rural Partners Network, we're making sure that investments reach rural America. We're working together across federal departments to be better partners in place-based work, to build a better front door to the federal government, and to make federal programs easier to access. The Undersecretary notes ongoing dialogue between federal agencies such as USDA, the Federal Communications Commission, and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration on rural broadband matters. That's why we meet on a bi-weekly basis and, frankly, regularly more often, both to establish a regular cadence of communication and to work through those sticky issues. I'm broadband reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Idaho Farm Bureau Federation owns one of the closest parcels of land near the Idaho State Capitol, and in 2022, they're exploring the feasibility of a new building. Idaho Farm Bureau President Brian Searle. Idaho's a great state to be involved in agriculture, but the landscape is changing. More groups are coming to Boise to push their interests that aren't always in the best interest of farmers and ranchers. Agriculture organizations, commissions, and entities of all kinds are in high gear to be in the conversation with these groups, lawmakers, and the general public. A very bright spot is that agriculture groups in Idaho have a desire to work together to protect farmers and ranchers, even if they disagree on an issue from time to time. Moving forward, the need for these collaborations will be instrumental to advance the cause of agriculture. The Idaho Farm Bureau Federation, the voice of Idaho agriculture, is fortunate to own one of the closest land parcels next to the state capitol building in Boise. Our current building sits on the corner of 5th and Washington and was originally purchased by the Mutual Insurance Company of Idaho in the 1960s and later sold to Farm Bureau Federation. Although the deed to the building was paid off in 1992, Major renovations and expenses followed due to the age of the structure. In 1999, Farm Bureau leadership funded a feasibility study and hired architects to look at taking down the old building and replacing it with something new. However, one of the limitations for a new building was that Farm Bureau only owned one corner of a city block, which limited the amount of office space and parking. As the new century began, the idea of a new building didn't go away. It just changed. With an eye on the future in Boise, the Idaho Farm Bureau State Board purchased a small adjacent strip of land in 2007, and then the adjoining property with the bank building in 2018. With these purchases, the Idaho Farm Bureau Federation owned the entire half of the Boise block. After the pandemic of 2020, the Idaho Farm Bureau State Board voted to hire an architect firm to re-explore building opportunities to capitalize on this prime real estate close to the capital. It is very important to understand we have saved for decades and been wise in our financial decisions to undertake this opportunity. The following images show the most current concept that is being researched for this property. 
This concept involves a five-story building that would have office space on the first four floors. The Farm Bureau Federation would only occupy a section of the building while the other areas of the building would be occupied and financed by other investors. The first floor would have a common lobby to access all floors. The first floor would also have the potential for retail space. A three-story parking garage with 118 parking spaces would connect to the building and these parking spaces would be designed to accommodate larger pickup trucks. The final concept of the building addresses the ability to host large gatherings, whether it is for business meetings or social events. A board and conference room would occupy the fifth floor with moving walls that would open up to outdoor reception area. This floor would be used for networking gatherings and could also be rented by approved groups. The objective of the building and the fifth floor specifically is to bring ag groups together to influence overall policy that will affect idle farms and ranches in the future. So, where are we at today? While nobody has been contracted to construct a new building, the State Board has authorized steps to compile and assess the feasibility of this concept. All information is currently being received and reviewed. The goal for a new building remains to be a sustainable voice and presence for agriculture. In other words, we want to have the right agriculture people in the right places at the right times with the right people having the right conversations. If we don't, someone else will. The creation of the Idaho Farm Bureau Federation in 1939 was to have a voice in Boise and pull people together. Since that time, we have evolved as an organization. We have advanced as a working partner with our friends and other agricultural groups. Again, we have saved for decades and been wise in our financial decisions to undertake this opportunity. We believe that every ag organization has people with answers for the future of farming. We just need the means to stay connected for the long run. In the end, we hope this short presentation leads to a basic understanding of the history of the Boise building concept that will lead to good conversations. By the way, you can catch the video version of this report at the Idaho Farm Bureau's website, idahofb.org. Well, U.S. corn growers don't have to worry very much about an oversupply of corn or a big price drop. Gary Crawford has the details with USDA Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekinowski. This upcoming U.S. corn crop, what kind of market situation will it face in this next year? Heightening. No, no, not frightening. What USDA, <laughs> what USDA Outlook Board Chairman Mark Jekinowski said was... Heightening. Tightening because of the changes USDA has just made in its forecast for the U.S. corn crop. Production this month was reduced by 415 million bushels. So now it's uh, currently forecast at 13.9 billion bushels. Uh, year over year, that would be down about 
1.2 billion bushels. Or about 8%. Mark says by the end of the marketing year, U.S. corn stocks will be the tightest since 2020, the result of this tightening corn supply situation, a new higher average corn price forecast. USDA raising it by 10 cents a bushel, new expected price. $6.75 a bushel. 80 cents higher than this past season. Definitely not frightening if you are selling corn, maybe a little bit if you're buying it. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In our next segment, the kind of financial year economists are anticipating for 2022, plus a look at food security in America's households with the USDA on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. For the latest Idaho Ag news, just go to idahofarmnet.com. What kind of year is 2022 shaping up to be for the nation's farm economy? Well, Gary Crawford gets the answer to that question from two top USDA economists on this edition of Agriculture USA. In a little over three months from now, farmers and ranchers across the country will be closing the financial books on this 2022 year. So how is this year treating those producers financially? Will the year leave them better off than 2021 or worse off? Farm sector assets look fairly strong. But it will also put in folks' minds some anxiety for the coming year. And we'll take a look at how this year is shaping up and what might happen next year on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. First, let's go back to last year. U.S. net farm income unexpectedly shot up 43 percent over 2020 and ended up being the highest net farm income for the nation since 2013. But even with such a good year in 2021, USDA's chief economist Seth Meyer says in terms of just cash money that farmers are expected to take in this year. You're talking about a $36.4 billion increase in crop receipts a $55.3 billion increase in livestock receipts. Up 15% from last year for crop receipts, 28% for livestock and livestock product sales. For a combined sales total of over $525 billion. That tops last year by over 21% and would be the highest on record for cash receipts. And for the most part, these higher receipts are not as much from selling more product, but that the products are bringing higher prices, much higher than a year ago. And that's what's driving most of the change here. 
That's Spiro Stefano. He runs the USDA's Economic Research Service. But as we all know, you have to spend money to produce the crop and uh, livestock products that you sell. And so here is where we use the subtraction feature on our calculator because while total cash receipts may be up about 21% for this year, we also have a very large increase in input costs and input expenses. Ooh, Seth Meyer there using his deep voice of doom, Darth Vader voice there. Now, Seth says it's not that bad, not Darth Vader bad, but he does say that USDA tracks prices for a lot of products producers use, and this year... Every single one of them higher in these broad categories like fertilizer, fuels and oils, interest, feed, pesticides, taxes, labor... And some of them quite large. Fertilizer increased more than 52% year over year as an expense. Fuels and oils up 42%, interest up 39%, every one of them being a positive increase in expenses. And a negative for net income. Production expenses overall are projected to go up by 18% or by $66 billion to over $437 billion. But... Production cost increases are not the only things eating into farm profits. The one major one is a big reduction this year in direct government payments to farmers for things like disasters and COVID relief programs and such. This year, those payments are projected to be $13 billion. We're somewhere in the neighborhood of the direct payments being half of what they were in 2021 and maybe a third to a quarter of what they were in 2020. So that is limiting how much producers are able to net from their cash sales. Nonetheless, adding and subtracting it all up, we're looking this year at a net cash farm income of $168.5 billion, up 15% from a year ago, and a net farm income, which uh, takes in such things as changes in farm inventories and such, of almost $148 billion, up about 5% from last year. So strictly on income, a good year, and Spiro Stefano says other measures of the health of the farm economy look good as well. Farm sector assets are look fairly strong in terms of financial viability. The debt-to-equity ratio is improving. That is, it's falling. It fell last year in 2021. It's still forecast to fall in 2022. Bankruptcies are falling. Debt service is falling. So in terms of the financial health of the sector, that, that bodes well. And so according to Seth Meyer, this year is shaping up well for many farmers. But it will also put in folks' minds some anxiety some anxiety for the coming year. Crop prices a bit, well, some anxiety. Crop prices have been slipping of late. Production expenses continuing to climb. So there are questions. Where will commodity prices go after this very strong gain in commodity receipts for 2022? And where will input prices go? But Seth Myers says, look, nobody knows the answers to those questions. So you might as well just hope for the best and enjoy what's left of 2022, which he says is another good year at this point. A good year for Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. USDA's latest edition of an annual report provides a glimpse of the state of food security and insecurity within our nation's households. Rod Bain explains in this report. Overall, for the prevalence of food insecurity, we did not see a statistically significant change from 2020 to 2021. But we did see some statistically significant changes for some subgroups. The summary from USDA economic researcher Alicia Coleman-Jensen 
regarding the annual household food security in the U.S. report issued by the Agriculture Department this month. The household food security report has been published for many years. We have data going back to 1995, and we publish an annual report that covers the prevalence of food insecurity in U.S. households by different household characteristics. We also look at food insecurity across the states, and we examine food insecurity in household food spending and participation in nutrition assistance programs. So for 2021, 89.8% of U.S. households were food secure, but 10.2% of U.S. households were food insecure. No significant difference year over year in both categories, yet subcategorial changes from 2020 range from notable decreases in food insecurity in households with children. 6.2% of households with children had food insecurity down from 7.6%. To no change in very low food security in children. This is the most severe range of food insecurity that we measure. And in 2021, children along with adults experienced this very low food security in 0.7% of households with children. And that was not statistically different from the 0.8% in 2020 to increases in food insecurity in households without children. And that increase was especially for women living alone. Food insecurity also increased for older adults age 65 plus living alone. Some population subgroups reported declines in food insecurity from 2020 to 2021. Those included households with children under age 18 with young children under age 6. We also saw declines in food insecurity for married couples with children and single mothers with children. We also look at differences in food insecurity by race and ethnicity, and food insecurity declined from 2020 to 2021 for households with Black, non-Hispanic head of household. We also saw declines for low-income households and for households in the South. Other breakdowns include median weekly food spending by food security status. And the data show that food secure households spent 16% more for food than the typical food insecure household of the same size and household composition. This is to be expected because we know that food insecure households are having trouble getting enough food for their families. And participation in one of USDA's three largest nutrition assistance programs. And we found that about 56% of food insecure secure households reported participating in one of those programs. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. When we return, some drought coverage improvements to tell you about, plus the role of the U.S. Drought Monitor on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851.
Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. August rains in several areas of the country reduced both total U.S. drought coverage and coverage in growing areas for several crops. Here's Rod Bain with more. The U.S. drought monitor showed a significant month-over-month decrease in drought coverage in the contiguous 48 states, thanks primarily to heavy August rains in areas such as the southeast. So then how did that translate into drought coverage of major crops and commodities during the month of August and through the Labor Day weekend? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey starts with... Corn, the decrease was from 31 to 29 percent of U.S. production area. For soybeans, the decrease was a little larger, from 28 to 21 percent of the production area. However, worsening drought conditions were reported in parts of the western corn belt and coverage of corn and beans grown in that area. Places like Nebraska and Kansas, for example. The South, particularly Texas, also saw drought relief from heavy rains throughout August, and in turn, a reduction of drought coverage for two particular crops. In terms of cotton, 65% of the production area in the U.S. was in drought in early August. That has since decreased to 45%. And for sorghum, we saw a decrease from 81 to 72% of the U.S. production area in drought during the five weeks ending September 6th. Yet, despite the reduction of drought in cotton and sorghum growing states from the significant moisture, unfortunately, that coming largely too late for those crops, Good-looking crops are reported in the southeast, where warm, showery conditions were noted this summer. So, for example, the peanut crop, just 11% of that production area in drought, down from 13% five weeks ago on August 2nd. However, there is increasing drought coverage concerns as one crop begins its planting season. And even with the rain across the southern Great Plains in August, there's still significant concern for the upcoming winter wheat crop, especially as you move into the central and northern Great Plains and the northwest, where it's been very dry. Winter wheat production area in drought as we started August, 58%. And then as we move into early September, that number has dropped a little bit to 53%. That's mostly on the strength of the southern plains rainfall. But another way of looking at that is more than half of the winter wheat production area currently experiencing drought as we move into the early part of the planting season. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, including the American Farm Bureau Federation, welcomed Wednesday's announcement from the USDA Advancing Climate Smart Pilot Projects. Michael Clement shares more on the $2.8 billion investment. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack Wednesday announced funding for Climate Smart pilot projects under the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities Program. American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall says the projects are a positive step forward in recognizing farmers as partners. Secretary Vilsack announced $2.8 billion in funding to help develop 70 projects that will advance climate smart agriculture practices. These practices, they'll help our farmers and ranchers advance their conservation goals through voluntary and market-driven programs. We encourage that these projects span all 50 states and recognize the differences between regions, farm size, and diversity of production in the United States. USDA developed the partnerships using recommendations from the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. AFBF is a founding member of the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. That's a partnership with more than 80 other food, agriculture, forestry, and environmental groups. 
We are pleased that Secretary of Agriculture Bill Sachs and Undersecretary Bonnie used FACA recommendations as a foundation when developing the partnerships for climate smart commodities. Several of the projects supported by AFBF and involving state and county farm bureaus were selected for funding, including projects supported by Tennessee Farm Bureau and California Farm Bureau. Duvall says AFBF will continue to engage on climate smart practices in the future. AFBF is looking forward to working with USDA and Congress on future climate smart agriculture initiatives. We'll continue to seek out other voluntary market-driven solutions that will help farmers and ranchers reach their conservation goals while ensuring that we keep dinner on the table for families all across America. Learn more at fb.org. Michael Clements, Washington. The U.S. Drought Monitor over time has proven to be a valuable tool in implementing some of the Ag Department's disaster assistance programs. Here's Rod Bain with more. Farmers and ranchers, if you are located in one of the many drought-impacted areas nationwide, you most likely have been keeping very close attention to the U.S. Drought Monitor to help make management decisions and, in several cases, apply for various USDA disaster assistance programs. When USDA implemented some of these programs into the Farm Bill several years back now, the idea was, especially for livestock producers, they really didn't have a safety net out there. They weren't able to buy crop insurance like some of our grain farmers do. Brian Fuchs serves as one of the authors of the weekly drought monitor as part of his duties with the National Drought Mitigation Center. He explains why and how the drought monitor is tied to disaster assistance programs through one of the first such programs, the Livestock Forage Disaster Program, as a tool to implement levels of relief. USDA came in and looked at all the data. They brought in our entire data set of weekly U.S. drought monitor data going all the way back to the year 2000. And their analytical people, they kind of did a run through the data and started developing where these thresholds were. What USDA was trying to do was build the safety net out there for livestock producers, but it wasn't intended to cover every drought situation. It was intended to cover the worst of the worst situations where you started hitting these extreme exceptional drought situations or long-term severe drought in some of these regions. And it had to happen during the grazing season. So each one of these counties has a defined grazing season for their livestock. And that's kind of how the LFP program was implemented. Since implementation and operation of LFP, USDA has seen that the drought monitor is is an objective tool that covers the entire country. It comes out every week and started utilizing the drought monitor to implement more of their programs. He says in his admittedly biased opinion, the U.S. drought monitor is the gold standard for drought data tools for use in USDA disaster programs. It does stack up to peer review. There are a lot of different pieces of data and information that are utilized, and that's what was the selling points to USDA when they started implementing these programs utilizing the drought monitor it was a scientific and objective tool that had been out there for a long time. It had been under scrutiny and many people were familiar with it and they did decide that it was the best way to implement these programs. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In our final segment, how a beginning farmer can be a good neighbor and Paul Marchant confesses to being a rural snob in the latest installment of Irons in the Fire on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. 
Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. 800-417-0851. That's 800-417-0851. Back now for the final segment of the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Regardless of where a beginning farmer operates, there are some considerations to make to assure that they are doing their part in being a good neighbor. Here's Rod Bain with more. Beginning farmers, what are some things you should consider in being a good neighbor when starting out? Whether your operation is several acres of cropland, or a hoop house, or an agritourism farm in a suburb. Kelly McAdam of University of New Hampshire Extension says it starts with understanding local zoning and regulations. So checking with the town or municipality to make sure that the land is properly zoned for what you want to do. That's probably one of the biggest things. This is especially the case as more small and diversified farms, regardless of location, are venturing into agritourism to be more profitable with those particular activities perhaps in suburban, even urban areas. Sometimes a beginner farmer is going to be farming a piece of land that is not the same place where they're going to be selling their products. So really looking at are they selling or are they doing some kind of activity on the property where they're going to have the public there. And that's really where a lot of this comes in is when you have people coming on the property. Whether those agritourism-oriented activities are one day or several weeks in a year. So if you're having people on the property, whether that's customers or maybe that's also volunteers, making sure you have the proper insurance coverages. She says insurance, especially when agritourism activities are involved, is not an area a farmer should try to save money financially. Also, perhaps you are leasing property that has trails or buildings for use. So you might have people utilizing that property in some way. So they are on the property. There might be some kind of risk exposure there. So just making sure that as the farmer lets their insurance carrier know of all the types of activities that's happening on the property. Another thing to consider, your neighbor's considerations and expectations. If this property hasn't been farmed in several years or maybe even generations, do you know how the property is deeded? Do you know if there's any easements on the property? What are some possible restrictions on the property? And do your neighbors know what you're doing? If you started to have any kind of agro-tourism activities, are they going to be okay with having 100 cars parked on the road for one day out of the year or a number of days? The noise, the traffic, you don't want those things to come up as a nuisance or as a problem. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And finally today, Paul Marchant asserts himself as a rural snob in the latest installment of Irons in the Fire. 
Hello everyone, this is Paul Marchant coming at you with another version of Irons in the Fire. Were it not for Nevada's legalization of gambling and the appetite for gambling of the citizens of my home state of Idaho, Jackpot as a town would not even exist. It would be just a spot among the high desert ranches between the San Jacinto and Hollister, a place at the bottom of the hill to rest the horses. As it is, though, the success of casinos like Barton's 93 Club and Cactus Pete's have literally put Jackpot on the map. Now, I'm not much of a gambler myself, but I have a certain fondness for Jackpot. It's my preferred mile-high city. The official elevation of Jackpot is 5,213 feet, but if you trot 50 or 60 steps to the north, you'll quickly get to your mile. I figure Jackpot is every bit as much a mile-high town as Denver. And with all due respect to my friends in Colorado and in deference to the National Western Livestock Show, I much prefer Jackpot to Denver. As a matter of fact, I can't think of a metropolis on the planet. Now, parenthetically, a metropolis, by my definition, being any designated area inhabited by 723 or more human beings. Anyway, I can't think of a metropolis where I'd rather spend time than just about any one-horse cow town. I'd much rather spend the weekend in Twin Bridges than the Twin Cities. San John is much more to my liking than San Jose. I'm an unapologetic and undeserving son of the rural American West, and I've developed a certain distrust and, dare I say, disdain for some urban ideals that, and the many misinformed attitudes of the cosmopolitan elite. It's true, I'm a rural snob. Yeah, I realize I'm exposing my obvious hypocrisy. Just because someone hails from the city or the suburbs doesn't necessarily mean they believe agriculture, the very thing that sustains life on the blue planet, is systematically and willfully destroying the earth, with no respect for purveyors of the sacred green movement. That, I suppose, is the mirror image of the faulty urban belief held by many city dwellers that... Anyone who resides more than 15 minutes from a mall is the naive overall-wearing imbecile. This particular quandary vexes me daily. I want to think and believe that we can always find some common ground, no matter how uncommonly ridiculous the other side's beliefs may seem. How is it possible to believe we're all in the same boat when so many seem so intent on sinking my canoe? Can't they see they'll follow us to the bottom of the pond if they keep shooting at our hull? It's a tired old mantra, that that mantra of educating the masses, but I'm afraid we need to figure out new ways to fight the old battle. The days of believing our thank-a-farmer bumper sticker will suffice are behind us. I don't need to be thanked. I think those of us who are immersed in production agriculture are incredibly and probably undeservedly blessed. As I noted, I'm a rural snob. And since we are thusly blessed and prosperous, it's our obligation and duty to figure out how to renew and reinvigorate this education thing. The battle would be much less savage if the opposition fought with us rather than against us. I regret to inform you, however, that it won't be easy. I don't even know if it's possible. I really don't have the answers yet. You know, there's always going to be opposition. Like the never-ending feral hog and horse populations, the idiots will keep reproducing both biologically and intellectually. But we still have to keep up the fight. There is really no choice. And honestly, I really do believe there will always be some common ground, even if it's buried under piles of cheap, trashy lies and misinformation. We may have to dig deeper than we ever thought. 
Just because we may not be able to find it doesn't mean it's not there. The same sun rises and sets every day, whether you're in Shoshone or Chicago. So why don't we just start with that? Let's keep on digging so we can start educating. This is Paul Marchant wishing you a wonderful week and happy fall. Well, that will do it for the program today. If you missed any part of today's show or previous programs, you can always catch up on podcasts at IdahoFarmNet.com. I'm Neil Larson, and we'll catch you next week at this time on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show.